0: You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, May second, two 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. Alright, good morning everyone, good to see you. Take a quick drink of water. Ah. As you're turning in your Bibles, 2 Timothy... Chapter 2, I think the majority, at least the majority in here are old enough to remember 2004. And if you're a little bit older, you might remember in 2004 that Drew Barrymore and Adam Sandler starred in a movie called Fifty First Dates. It was a, a fun little romantic comedy. It was a story in which... Drew Barrymore's character suffered from selective memory loss or or selective amnesia that was brought about by a car accident that she can't remember. And so her dad and her family and her close friends, they basically worked hard every day to help her relive that same day afterwards over and over again. But Adam Sandler's character entered into the story and he altered her trajectory. As each day he would work for her to fall in love with him over and over and over again because she couldn't remember what happened the day before. Um, It's a fun little story, and if you haven't seen it, I'm going to give you the spoiler. So here's a spoiler alert. Ultimately, Adam Sandler created a video of her life that she had to watch every single morning to reorient her to a day that she couldn't Remember? Every day, she had to watch this video and and be reminded of the terrible things that had happened in order for her to be able to grasp and enjoy the good things that were now part of her life. It's a funny movie of a very hard-to-imagine scenario in real life, and I'm certain it wasn't the intention of the creators to accurately depict the spiritual reality that each of us wake up to every morning. But they did. Every single morning, each of us wakes up suffering from gospel amnesia. And if we ignore it, we'll find ourselves staggering and stumbling through life, living like that proverbial ship, being tossed to and fro out in the sea, rudderless and unanchored, lacking stability, lacking peace living forgetful of the shaping, strengthening, transforming, and defining grace of God. But as Solomon reminds us in Ecclesiastes, there's, there's nothing new under the sun. Just a quick glance back at the story in the Old Testament, having delivered His people from slavery in Egypt, God instituted for them the feast of the Passover. And in Exodus 12, it says this, when your children ask you what does this ceremony mean to you, tell them. It's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Every year when they ask you why we're doing this, remind them. And then as they carried forward after God brought them to the mountain and delivered to them his law, his commands, his rule for their life, for their joy, for his glory, Moses went on to say this. In the future, when your son asks you, what's the meaning of these stipulations, these decrees, and these laws that the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our forefathers. Remember, when they ask, we remind them. As they prepared to enter into the land that God has promised, when they crossed over the Jordan, as soon as they had crossed over the Jordan, God told the priest to go and grab stones from that Jordan and begin to build them in a tower on the other side of the Jordan. And Joshua 4 says this, in the future when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. Of what? Of God's power, of His faithfulness, of His care for His people and His commitment to His people. When they ask what's going on here, remind them, tell them. "Remember. Remember. 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 Yet in Judges 8, we find what is so common of God's people. We're reminded the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. Friends, God's people have always tended to forget. Not so much in the informational sense. Not so much in the X's and O's and in the details, but God's people have always tended to forget in the dismissing and minimizing sense. Many of us can wake up and we can explain the ins and outs of the life and the work of Christ, the long-standing story of God's grace to His people when it comes to what shapes our lives familiarity has a tendency to breed dismissal. And we live our lives not moved and not awed and not shaped and not stilled and not anchored and not driven by this grace. We don't wake up having forgotten the tenets of the gospel. We just simply wake up each day not treasuring it, dismissing, in a sense, its importance for our lives today. We sing it around here fairly often, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave, dismiss, think that there's something better or more important out there than the one I love. This gospel amnesia doesn't mean we wake up all of a sudden wondering and wandering one day to Muhammad or to Buddha. It just means we wake up and try to stagger through our lives trying to make sense of our of our own personal narrative and interpretation of our life and day, trying to turn it in the direction that we want because of our forgetfulness. Paul Tripp wrote it this way, the concerns of the present can so dominate our minds that we have very little mental energy left to remember what came before. In fact, so many of us have totally forgotten the incredible identity-giving story that defines not only us, but everything about life. We, We wake up gospel amnesiacs. This is exactly the way that a woman named Luma Sims describes it in her life story. She wrote this. See if you can relate. Although I believe that I've been a Christian since I was eight years old, for many years my faith was accompanied by a cloudiness and distortion like that of the blind man that Jesus healed. I see men, but they just look like trees walking. It hurts me to write these words, yet they must be written. They must be written for the sake of many who silently live the way that I lived and think the way that I thought. Most of my life, she said, has been spent finding one way or another to atone for myself, operating from a hazy understanding of What Christ did in his life and death to win my salvation, this self-atonement was like a vortex, a downward spiral into the depth of my own amnesia. I wanted to be godly, and I thought I had a pretty good idea of how to go about it. But the harder I tried to approximate my mental image of, of what a godly woman was supposed to be, the worse my depression, panic attacks, and rage became. I poisoned our household with my anger and my holy laws. Down I went like a dragon falling from the sky with blood and fire spilling everywhere and contaminating everything in its path. At the end of hope, feeling and believing myself to be on the receiving end of the hot displeasure and disappointment of a holy God, she says, I crash." Friends, gospel amnesia leaves us living unanchored, unsteadied, untethered lives. And in this letter that Paul has written to Timothy that we're taking our time to look at, Paul is very lovingly trying to help Timothy and the church avoid the crash that comes when we live with gospel amnesia, the crash that Gospel amnesia eventually causes. And at the same time, he is writing, pushing back against this that Timothy and the church would also be strong in the grace of God, courageous and confident, pressing on in the work that God has called. And when that work and when that life and when that living brings suffering, when it brings slander, when it brings pressure, We'd embrace it and not run from it. Why? Because we're anchored. We're rooted, which comes from remembering. There is an intentionality required in this, an intentionality on our part to remember. That's what I love so much about the movie. Every single day. They had to remember. She had to remember in order to fully enjoy the goodness that was right there in her life, stabilizing and anchoring her today. This is what Paul is getting after for Timothy and the church. Keep your attention on Jesus. Remember Jesus Christ, Paul said, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. Keep your attention on Jesus. This is what eventually turned the corner for Luma Sims in her life. She said, I crashed. The gospel amnesia that I was living in, being tossed to and fro, falling like a dragon. I crashed. And then when there was nothing left of me, there was Jesus, my Savior, my Redeemer, my friend. No displeasure, no disappointment, just the blazing fire of unmerited grace. Remember Jesus, Paul said. As I have never stopped preaching in my gospel. Because Jesus is the heart of the gospel. He is the heart of the good deposit. This statement that Paul makes here in verse 8, it is filled to capacity with the fullness of the good news. In fact, it deals with the two biggest questions that each of us have to ask in life. Who, Who is Jesus and what did he do? Listen to how Paul answers it. Jesus is the Christ. Christ, the title. It's translated the anointed one. It's the Greek translation for Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one. He is the Christ. He is the one who is equipped by God's spirit to redeem his people. He is the offspring of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, and one day we'll go back to the story in Samuel. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a promise to David that his greater son would sit on his throne forever. Jesus is the long-awaited promised Messiah, the anointed one that God has promised to his people for generations, and he is risen from the dead. The anointed one was also the sin-bearing sacrifice who died in the place of God's people for their sins, whom God raised three days later, proving the effectiveness of his sacrifice. Jesus is the long-awaited anointed Messiah, the promise of God to his people, who is risen from the dead not who rose from the dead, but who is right now alive, risen from the dead, conquering Satan's sin and death, sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Death did not defeat the Son of God. In this little statement in verse 8, you have Paul's shorthand for the fullness of the gospel story. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the predicted Messiah, fulfilling the hundreds of promises and prophecies from the Old Testament who established the kingdom of God and is today King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the Savior. He is the King. In this statement is implied everything about the gospel. Jesus' virgin birth, His perfect life, His substitutionary death – His victorious rise from the grave. His ascension to the right hand of God the Father. His promise to return. It's all in here. Keep your attention on Jesus. Today, tomorrow, and the next day. And as you do, every morning becomes Easter morning for you. Remember Jesus. His resurrection brought your spiritual resurrection. Paul would say the same thing to the church in Rome in Romans 6 when he said, We therefore were buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Keep your attention on Jesus, and as you do, you keep your attention on the reminder that you are a new creation, that God in his grace has given you a new heart with new desires, with a new potential. His Spirit has taken up residence in your heart that you might live a new life. Keep your attention on Jesus. Remember, His resurrection is the promise that one day you will rise with Him as well. If the Spirit of Him, Paul said in Romans 8, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through His Spirit who dwells in you. This isn't all there is, friends. Paul's going to come back to this later on. It's so important. It is one of the stumbling blocks we deal with daily with this gospel amnesia. This isn't all there is. If the Spirit of God who gave life to Jesus' body resides in you, he too will give life to your mortal body on the day of his return. This isn't all there is. You don't have to be afraid. The one who saved you, the one you serve, the one for whom at times you will suffer, he is alive and he reigns. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Keeping your attention on Jesus. Friends, it's how we resist the temptation to avoid the pain to avoid the humiliation, to avoid the heartache, to avoid the suffering that comes for following him. Remember Jesus. So many things vying for your attention. So many things pressing on you, trying to convince you that they're of utmost importance. Keep your attention on Jesus. That's a continuous command. You could translate it, keep on remembering. Remember Jesus. And as you do, remember, grace always wins. Grace wins. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul is bound by chains in a Roman prison. He's a Roman citizen and an innocent one in that. Yet he's in chains because he's presumed to be an enemy of Rome. That word criminal is a very particular word. It's a word that's used predominantly with insurrectionists, those who were being charged or found guilty with treason. About the time that Paul has been chained in prison in Rome, Nero had gone on his campaign against the way, or against Christians, and one of the things that Nero had done was he had set fire to Rome and blamed the church, blamed the Christians, blamed the way, of whom Paul was a leader. So here Paul is now, being treated as an insurrectionist, being treated as a traitor, being treated as a criminal for preaching the gospel. Timothy, I'm being publicly accused of this. Don't be so ignorant as to think it won't happen to you. But remember, the gospel can't be chained. It's a deliberate play on words that Paul has going on here. As one writer says that the enemies of the gospel can imprison the preachers of the gospel, but they cannot imprison the gospel. In fact, even the imprisonment of the preacher serves only to advance the gospel. This is the very thing Paul wrote to the church in Philippi when he said, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He was being chained at that time in prison to a guard. And Paul says, this has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Chain me up. I'm just going to tell you about Jesus. By the time I'm done and guards have switched off duties, the entire imperial guard has heard the good news about Jesus. And guess what? The more the brothers in the church hear about my imprisonment for Jesus, guess what? They just get bolder to preach too. I might be in chains, Timothy, and don't be so ignorant as to think that in following Jesus it won't happen to you either. But guess what? The gospel can't be bound. Listen, church. Paul is saying you may wind up just like me and find yourself in moments wondering if all of the work had been for nothing. Remember, the gospel can't be bound. His word is living and active, sharper than anything we can imagine. Remember, grace wins. There was a, a missions organization in the early 1900s. It was, it was called the Co-Mission, missions organization. And they worked in the former Soviet Union and in different Eastern European countries at the time. And in one of their newsletters, they, they, they wrote this story of something that had occurred. Back in the Stalinist regime in the former Soviet Union, uh, when the church was undergoing severe persecution, it was illegal to actually be a Christian. One of the things that they, had, that they did was they rounded up all the Christians, and they took for them all of their Bibles, all of their writings. Many in the church thought that those, when they were taken away, were destroyed, but what had happened was they were all locked up in these various warehouses outside of the cities in many of these former Soviet uh, areas. And as things began to change, I'm to try to take a long story short, as things began to change, the church asked if they could have their Bibles back, and one person remembered that they had been locked up in this particular warehouse, and so the government had a number of people go along with some of the church members to this warehouse to see what was still in there. And they opened up the warehouse, and there, much to some of their surprise, were all of the Bibles that had been taken away and all the writings that had been taken away. And so they had a number of people go in to begin to bring those things out. And as the story goes, there were some that were working with this, this commission, this frontier mission group who were a part of that effort. And one of the workers that were there helping them move the Bibles out disappeared. Couldn't find it. He wasn't a part of the mission. He was not a believer. He was raised in the atheist Soviet Union. He was just assigned to go help do the labor of moving these things out, and they couldn't find him. Well, one of the workers finds him in a a far corner of the warehouse crying. Now, you're thinking he went and took a Bible, read the Bible, understood Jesus, got saved. Well, you're kind of right. He took one of the Bibles to that far corner and began to read it, but when he opened it up, what he found was his own grandmother's name. It was her Bible. And she had died before he ever had a chance to get to know her. And in it was her inscription and her notes on this Bible. Take them away, chain them up. You can't bind the gospel. Grace wins. So Paul says, keep on preaching the gospel. Keep on gossiping the gospel. Remember Jesus. Enjoy Jesus. Enjoy grace. And as you do, God will work through you for his glory and others' joy in Jesus. Because grace wins, I can endure anything for the sake of those that God has called. Because it's worth it. Because God has a people that he set his love on before the foundation of the world. Paul was reminding Timothy and the church because of God's eternal love, you can know that your work, your labor in loving, in serving, in speaking, in preaching, it can't fail. It can't fail. I mean, far from diminishing preaching, far from diminishing evangelism, far from sharing the gospel and even suffering for it, God's election doesn't cool our jets, as one writer said. It gives us rocket fuel because we know our work won't be in vain. Keeping your attention on Jesus, remembering the gospel. Friends, that's a daily reminder that grace wins. And if grace wins, what do we have to be afraid of? Keeping your attention on Jesus, remembering him, reminds us not only that grace wins, but it's also a reminder that this present life is not all that there is. I said it earlier, I'll come back to it now, one of the consequences of gospel amnesia is this really sad settling that we do in our life. It's this really sad sense of, of settling for the here and the now as though this was all that there is. And when we're suffering from this gospel amnesia, when we're not reminding ourselves on a daily basis and working to remind others keep to keep our attention on Jesus, when we're, we're not being strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus on a daily basis, it's so easy for you and I to simply settle. Settle for less of Jesus, settle for less joy, settle for less peace. So we stumble around every single day thinking, well, if this is all there really is, I've got to do everything that I can to make the most of it. And sometimes we're stumbling around in despair thinking, well, this is all there is, and I can't seem to fix it. And gospel amnesia leaves us being tossed to and fro between those things, ultimately having to come into a place where our hearts, we settle. And so, Paul, with a series of trustworthy sayings, he, he's going to call Timothy and the church back to a life of not settling for less in the fullness of God in Christ. Look at what he says, verse 11, this saying is trustworthy. Paul's saying you can bank on this. This is just one of five trustworthy sayings that are technically in these pastoral letters. And Most scholars think they're probably part of an early hymn or an early confession of faith. This saying is trustworthy. Remember, if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. It's just an echo of what he wrote in Romans 6, 8. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. It's the basic reality of becoming and living as a Christian, Remembering that Christ redeemed us by dying as our representative and substitute, and in that he calls us to lose our lives for his sake in the gospel. And in losing our lives for him, we actually gain the fullness of life. In dying to ourselves every single day, we live with him. Remember this. I mean, honestly, if we really believed that, if we really treasured Jesus for who he is, if we really kept the attention of our hearts fixed on the fact that God's grace wins, why do we fight so hard to always be in the front of the line in our life? If the last are really going to be first. If this isn't really all there is. If there's an eternity that he has prepared for us to be with him. When the fullness of all of his created intention and perfection would be ours in Christ. Why do we have to fight so hard and jockey so hard? for all the positions that our hearts get caught up in today. If we've died with Him and we know we're also going to live with Him, it means we're free. Free to be last. Free to be a servant to all. Because there's more life in Jesus. Than what I spend so much time and energy and emotion and effort on trying to win for myself here? Remember, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. But also, verse 12, remember, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Sometimes in the Bible, endure is used in a, in a static sense. You see this in, in Matthew's gospel a couple of times. It's used to stand your ground, to hold your ground. But here endure is written in an active sense. It's the endurance of pressing on in difficulty. It's the endurance that's required when you hit mile 21 in the marathon and you're not sure your legs can keep going, you're not sure your lungs can keep going, your heart feels like it's coming out of your tank top, and you endure and you keep going. You're pressing on in the face of difficulty. Just as Christ endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, keeping your attention on Jesus, being strengthened daily by the grace that's found in Jesus, this is the source of our enduring. And don't miss the reward. If we endure, we will also reign with him. What's that gonna be like? Some kind of vice regency with Jesus in eternity. A kind of proximity and intimacy and even responsibility that we can't even begin to imagine. If we endure and he's faithful to continue to strengthen us by His grace in Christ so as we keep our attention on Jesus, God continues to do what He has promised to strengthen us by that grace that we might endure. And as we endure, we're promised, we don't just get to be with Him in heaven, but we get to reign with Him in eternity. Remember. Remember, though, if we deny Him, He will also deny us. Paul is, is just reiterating the very things that Jesus had taught when he was on the earth. Matthew 10, Jesus said, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Mark records it this way in Mark 8. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in glory and when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels It's very important and you'll understand why in just a minute. It's very important that you understand that this particular stanza of the hymn or of the confession grammatically is written in the future tense. So he's looking forward to something. He's looking forward towards the day when all of us will stand before Christ and give an account. Whoever denies him on that day, he will deny. It's a warning Paul was reminding Timothy and the church of. And it's important that you understand that warning and how it's written to understand what comes next. Remember, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to be completely straight with you. Church history has read this stanza of this hymn or this confession in two ways, and they're both true. Now, which one Paul intended, I'm not really sure, but I'll tell you where I land. Here's the way history has read this stanza. John Stott, more contemporary scholar, he would say with church history on one stream that these last two stanzas are just restatements of one another. That verse 13 is a warning, just as the one before it was. A warning in the sense that God will remain faithful to his character, consistent. Consistent with his holiness and justice. Therefore, he will judge and he will deny those who ultimately deny him and who are faithless. Guess what? That's true. God will be consistent with his character. He will be consistent with his holiness. He will be consistent with his justice. His character demands it. Church history has also read this in another way that is equally true. But it's not read as a warning. It's actually read as a promise, an encouragement. And to be honest with you, this is where I tend to land. And here's why. Verse 13 goes back to the present tense. It's not written in the future tense like the previous stanza, It's in the present tense. And because it's in the present tense, I I think Paul meant this as an encouragement. If we act unfaithfully towards Jesus, which is the sum total of living with gospel amnesia, I mean, that is the result of failing to live in a growing sense of affection and vitality and dependence and joy in Jesus on a daily basis. You will be unfaithful to Jesus, period. It's part of still wrestling with and fighting against the remaining indwelling sin in our lives. When you are unfaithful towards Jesus, God remains faithful to you. Why? because he can't deny himself. His love and his grace is just as consistent as his justice and his holiness. I mean, the Bible is literally on repeat to convince us that daily, God is consistent towards us in his steadfast love and faithfulness. When I read this stanza of whatever hymn and confession this may have been a part of, do you know what comes to my mind? Peter, Peter, I'm not sure, Peter didn't write this hymn, I don't know, just me speculating, I should probably stand away from the Bible when I say that. Three times on that faithful night, I don't know him. I don't know him. I have no idea who he is. If that's not faithlessness, if that's not living and being and acting unfaithful towards Jesus, I don't know what is. But then I remember Jesus' tender restoration of Peter, Jesus' reassuring of Peter, of his steadfast love for him. Grace wins, Peter. Peter. Because I can't deny myself. Friends, you and I wake up each morning needing the same reminder of the steadfast love of God. The same reminder of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and ascension on our behalf. The same reminder that grace wins, that God is faithful. We wake up every day needing to see that tape again because we wake up forgetful. Without it, our days just become a series of days of staggering, being unanchored, tossed to and fro, anxious, angry, disoriented, distracted. Gospel amnesia leaves us far too easily pleased with lesser joys. This is the the force of what Lewis was trying to write in The Weight of Glory. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. But like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he can't imagine what is meant by an offer of the holiday at the sea, You and I are far too easily pleased. And we settle. And a watching world looks on. And they see us being tossed to and fro just like they are, striving, jockeying with the same ambitions and the same manner of living. And somehow we're confused. When they seem to not understand what difference Jesus would make. remembering Jesus, remembering that His grace wins, remembering that He remains faithful. Prince, this is just the work of cultivating your soul. This is how the roots of the gospel go down deep. This is how you and I become anchored, how we become rooted. Isaiah says it this way, Isaiah 26.3, you, speaking of God, keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. <laughs> perfect peace. Just take a listen to the conversations that we have today. No peace. Just amped up fear, amped up anxiety, defensiveness, being tossed around by every news cycle and Facebook post. Keep your attention on Jesus. Keep your attention on the fact that his grace wins. Keep your attention on the faithfulness of God, and he will keep you in perfect peace. Not only that, he will renew your affections, not just your intellect. Psalm 90 verse 14 says, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Friends, do you want to be satisfied in Jesus? Or are you simply okay with settling for lesser joys? Satisfy me today with your steadfast love. With Jesus, with your grace, with your faithfulness, that my affections, my affections would be renewed. Remember Jesus. Remember the victory of his grace. Remember his faithfulness. Remember that he gives sufficient grace that we can endure. And if we endure through him, we will reign with him. And when the day comes that your faith ends in sight and you hear your Savior say, well done, friends know that God promises you will not regret living in, passing on, and suffering for the gospel as a good soldier, as a disciplined athlete or as a hard farmer, because he's worth it. Let me pray for us this morning as we get ready to respond to God's word. Lord, we ask this morning that you would create in us by your Holy Spirit a, a righteous, a, a holy, a, an appropriate dissatisfaction, an unwillingness to settle for lesser joys in the fullness of all you have for us in your Son. Help us to see all the ways that we've substituted what you have for us with things that ultimately can't please, can't satisfy, can't stabilize, can't bring peace. God, we want all that you have for us in your Son by your Spirit, the new life that you have purchased for us not just the fullness of what's to come, but the reality of what is ours even now. And Lord, as we live, help us to live with the end in view. Not to live forgetful of what still lies ahead. Lord, fix our attention on you. Fix our attention on your grace. Fix our attention on your faithfulness. We ask this morning that you would do that work in us by your spirit. In Jesus' good name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.